Well, let's uh, open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Let me just make a brief comment at this point. I, uh, if you are an unbeliever this morning, if you don't know Jesus, if you are walking a life away from him, I hope you realize, and I hope this serves as a testimony to you, that uh, Christ truly saves people from their sins. And what you are seeing around you, if you are an unbeliever, what you're seeing all around you, all the people singing, is because of the grace of God and not because of anything that we have done. And I hope that this will be a testimony to you of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will convince you of your sin and it will bring you to faith in his name. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, actually beginning and ending in verse 10. That's all we're looking at this morning. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Let go and let God, said Hannah Whittle Smith in her popular book called The Christian's Secret of a Happy Life. Don't recommend it. (laughs) Then she continues, and I quote, let this analogy teach you what it means to rest in the Lord. Let your soul lie down upon the couch of his sweet will as your bodies lie down in their beds at night. Relax every strain. And lay off every burden. Let yourself go in a perfect abandonment of ease and comfort. Sure that he holds you up. You are perfectly safe. Your part is simply to rest. End quote. How about that? Sounds like what you would hear were while getting a massage. And listening to some jazz music. Interesting words. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul saying, Finally, brothers, let yourselves go in a perfect abandonment of ease and comfort? Now, obviously, God is the God of comfort. And God does comfort us. But make no mistake about it, my dear brothers and sisters, letting ourselves go in a perfect abandonment of ease and comfort is not how we live the Christian life, not even for a second. Let me put it this way. The Christian life is not lived by abandoning ourselves to ease and comfort but by engaging ourselves in spiritual battle and conflict. The reality is as follows. As Christians, we are never at ease. The purpose of the following verses, in particular verses 10 through 20, is to show us that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are in battle. It is invisible but it is fierce. And this is not by our own choice or design. It is by God's choice and God's design. What do I mean by that? I mean to say that God in his good and perfect plan and will has chosen 
to create the church within a fallen creation. Out of this fallenness, God is recreating a new humanity called the church. But this beautiful creation of God, meaning the church, has to share territory with much, much corruption. In other words, the people of God live their earthly lives surrounded by corruption and much evil. And this corruption shows itself in three primary ways. The flesh, the world, and who is the third one? Satan. These are the three enemies, the flesh, the world, and Satan. And all of them, each one of those enemies are constantly waging war against the people of God. Therefore, Paul will ensure that his readers know about this reality. Why does it matter? It matters because ignorance of the battle is a sure way to lose the battle. How can you be ready to defend yourself if you don't know you are under attack? Just like you won't look for a cure until you know you're sick, you won't see the need to fight until you realize you are in a battle and that the enemy is lurking. Now, I mentioned that we have three enemies, the flesh, the world, and Satan. Paul has already dealt with two of them in the letter of Ephesians. In chapter 4, verse 22 and following, he dealt with the flesh when he spoke of putting off what? The old self and putting on the new self created after the likeness of God and about the need to renew our minds. These are all references to the inner man and the remaining corruption in all of us. We all share in that remaining corruption, the flesh in which, according to Paul, nothing good dwells. Paul also briefly dealt with the world in chapter four, verse six and following when he talked about the unfruitful works of darkness. These are wickedness and corruptions that are readily, readily available in the world because this world is fallen. And we see things such as the prevailing influence of pornography and sexual immorality and all of those things. So he has dealt with both the flesh and the world to an extent today. The apostle Paul will begin instructing us on what might be the fiercest enemy yet, namely Satan. In fact, the way in which Paul presents this enemy is quite intimidating. If you look at verse 13, he talks about cosmic rulers. He talks about authorities. He talks about powers. He talks about darkness. He talks about the forces of evil. This is very powerful imagery. Therefore, we are no longer looking at the war that comes from within or the war that comes from the world in general. Now we are talking about an enemy, about an enemy that actually has a will. An enemy that has intentions, he has power, he has thoughts, and pure, pure evil intentions. This is an enemy that actually hates God. It's an enemy that hates God. It's an enemy that hates you, and it hates me. Now, we will take a closer look at this enemy a bit more in detail when we come to verses 11, 12, and 13. Today, we're looking at verse 10 only, and this is Paul's instruction an introduction to our spiritual battle. We're opening the door, as it were, into the invisible 
but all too real world of spiritual conflict and struggle. With that in mind, consider with me the first point for this morning. Number one is the constancy of our calling. The constancy of our calling. Where do I get this from? The first word in verse 10. Finally. Finally. What does finally mean? Well, I I know that by now, after almost two years of studying the book of Ephesians, Your temptation might be to think that finally means I'm glad this is almost over, (laughs) but I can guarantee you that's not what Paul had in mind. I believe that the word was used by Paul and under the inspiration of the Holy spirit to convey much more than a sigh of relief. What does it convey then? According to some Greek scholars, the word finally, although proper in the technical sense, might not be the best way to communicate what Paul had in mind because he's not simply saying, well, here are my final remarks. He's saying more than that. There's more to that little word. A more accurate translation might be this, henceforth or from now on. Let me show you an example of this. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 17, Paul said, from now on, let no one cause me trouble For I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. It is the same word. From now on is the same word that Paul used in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. The point of the word then is not exclusively to bring something to a close, but also to set an idea in motion. To set an idea in motion. It is not simply a way for Paul to transition into his final remarks but also to show the the efficient Christians a path forward to set a reality in front of their very minds and hearts from now on, from now on. It is as though Paul were saying this, what I'm about to tell you is going to stay with you for the rest of your lives. What I'm about to tell you is going to stay with you for the rest of your lives from now on. This is going to be your reality. This is the realm in which you live from now on. This means that what Paul is about to tell these Ephesian believers is an ongoing call. It never ends. Circumstances cannot change it. Illness cannot alter it. Crisis cannot prevent it. As long as you have breath in your lungs and an awareness of your existence, the following words from the apostle Paul should remain with you at all times. But how can Paul say from now on, you may ask, were not these Christians already engaged in spiritual battle? Yes. The answer is yes. The battle for the Christian begins as soon as he is regenerated by the Holy spirit and covered in the imputed righteousness of Jesus, which makes this word all the more powerful. You need to pay attention to this word. My dear brothers and sisters, I see the need at this moment to remind you that what you are hearing this morning today is the word of God. This is the word of God spoken to you, spoken to me. God is speaking to us in and through his written word. Therefore, listen to this. If there are any of us in this room, anyone in this room who are still trying to hold on to certain sins, to specific lusts, 
various vices, lies, anger, or whatever else you can think of, I want you to consider the words from now on, and I need you to take them as a call to repentance. From now on, my dear friend, consider with me the overwhelming grace and mercy of God upon you this morning, today. This morning, today. Think about your life today. Maybe you came in here today and you have been playing with dangerous sins. Maybe you have been allowing yourself to be entangled in various vices and wickedness. But this morning, as we are opening up this verse, it is the Lord himself who tells you, my dear son, my dear daughter, you have been entangled in sin. You have been walking away from me. You have forgotten my covenant. You have taken the blood of Jesus for granted. You have disregarded my commandments. But says the Lord to you and to me this morning, from now on, from now on. Listen for God's fatherly voice this morning and truly consider his compassion for you in Christ from now on. If you are in Christ, God is not condemning you. My friend, he's calling you back to himself from now on. Stop being entangled with sin from now on, from now on, come back to the Lord. Heed his voice. But the question remains from now on what this leads us to point number two. Consider with me the nature of the command. Be strong. Be strong. Finally, or from now on, be strong. You who are entangled with sin, be strong. You who are walking in unfaithfulness, be strong. You who are weak, be strong. You who are discouraged, be strong. You who are doubting, be strong. From now on, be strong. What do we make of these words? Well, to begin with, if you're familiar with the Bible, it is almost impossible to read these two words without your mind immediately being drawn back to what? The Old Testament. Do you, don't you like me when I ask a question and I answer immediately? <laughs> I don't even give you a chance. It, it, it takes us back to the Old Testament. And of course, I'm thinking of the well-known Old Testament account of a specific man. The one who succeeded Moses as leader of the people of Israel, as they prepared to respond to God's call to take possession of what? The promised land. I did it again. And to drive all the enemies away. You know his name, Joshua. The account of his life and ministry has produced what has come down through church history as one of the most well-loved and beloved portions of scriptures. As Joshua prepared to take the, the place of Moses and to lead the people into the conquering of the promised land, the Lord spoke words directly, directly to him. And you remember what he said to him, right? In just nine verses, the Lord said to Joshua three times, be strong and courageous. Although it may be difficult to prove it beyond a shadow of doubt, it would be hard to deny the very strong and likely possibility that Paul had the account of Joshua in mind when he wrote Ephesians chapter six, verse 10. And I believe he did. In fact, 
And as one commentator pointed out, it would be safe to say that at this junction in the letter of Ephesians, Paul even might see himself as a type of Joshua. Think about it. Just like Joshua, Paul is helping God's people, meaning the church, be ready for what? Battle. I always do that. I don't know why. I should give you some time to respond, huh? The only difference being that we are dealing with an invisible enemy. But the words are the same. Be strong and courageous. As Paul considers the last few words for these Christians in Ephesus who are living daily in the battlefield, fighting the good fight of the faith against a powerful enemy, Paul realizes the need to call them to be strengthened. And just like Israel was called to be strong and courageous in the, in the face of upcoming battles and enemy resistance, we too, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called to be strong in the face of ongoing attacks from the invisible enemy, from Satan. Paul will later on specify these attacks and he even has a name for them in verse 11. He calls them the schemes of the devil. We're not going to deal with that this morning. We're going to save that for next Sunday, but notice with me, the words be strong are not written as a suggestion. These words are a command. You know what that means? It means that not to be strong or not to grow in strength is a sin against God. You have a duty to be strong. It is your responsibility to be strong. Moreover, this command lets us know that we need to be strong because our enemy is powerful, the battle is real, and the flesh is weak. Now, there are very specific ways in which you and I need to be strong because there are specific areas and ways in which Satan loves to attack and hopes to destroy. So being strong is actually a very specific command with very clear guidelines. But we will not be concerned with those details at this time as they will become clear in the weeks ahead. So I really hope you will persevere through these sermons. I, I believe these are essential for our life in a fallen world. So I hope that you will persevere through these sermons and put up with me. But we will, we will save that for later. For now, let me just point out an important aspect of this command to be strong. It is written in the passive voice not in the active, which is a critical element because this is the key that unlocks the central meaning of what Paul is saying. When something is written in the passive voice, that means that the subject is not the one doing the action. Rather, in the passive voice, the subject is the one being acted upon. What Paul is saying is this, be strengthened or receive the strength available to you. Now, this point this point leads us to the main truth of this verse, which is point number three. Consider with me the sphere of our strength. Consider with me the sphere of our strength. Paul said, finally, or from now on, be strong in the Lord. This has primarily two meanings. The first one is this. What does that Paul, what does that mean? Well, be strong in light of your union with Christ. 
Be strong in the Lord, meaning be strong in light of our union with Christ. This is clearly an emphasis for the Apostle Paul, and it has been throughout his letter. All you have to do is go back to chapter 1, read the first 14 verses, and you will realize that for the Apostle Paul, everything good is found in Christ. There is no blessing outside of Christ. There is no power outside of Christ. There is no possibility of defeating the enemy outside of Christ. Everything is connected to Christ. You have to read verse, chapter 1, verse 3, and that is a perfect summary. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is where? In Christ. In Christ. In the Lord. In Christ. This, my brothers and sisters, includes our strength for spiritual battle. So let me just bring to your attention the wonderful indicatives of the gospel of Jesus Christ so we might draw strength from him. Here's the first indicative. First indicative. We are one with Christ in his perfect death. I'm sorry, in his perfect life. His perfect life. We are one with Christ in his perfect life. This is pure gospel, my friends. This is all gospel. Consider how Jesus, in his incarnation, lived the life you and I could not live. Do you realize this? Can we have a little talk? Do you realize this? That the reason why the life of Jesus matters to you and to me as Christians is because Jesus lived his life as a representative because he did what we could not do. His holiness was and is absolute. Can anybody in this room say that? Please do not raise your hand. There was no inclination toward sin in him. All his thoughts were pure. All his words were true. And all his steps were taken in the fullness of the spirit. Can anybody in this room say the same? He always did what was pleasing to the father. But this is wonderful news to us because Jesus came and lived his perfect life as a covenant representative of his people, the church. Therefore, his perfect life is counted as ours. Be strong, therefore, in knowing that you, my Christian friend, are viewed by God as though you lived Christ's perfect life. This is one of the most amazing truths in all of scripture. In all of scripture. This is the, the beauty of our union with Christ because we are one with him. We reap the full benefits of his perfect obedience to the father. Consider the glory of the gospel of Jesus. Number two, we are one with Christ in his substitutionary death. We are one with Christ in his substitutionary death. Elsewhere, the apostle Paul said that, said that we must consider ourselves dead to sin. Do you wake up in the morning and you consider yourself dead to sin? Consider yourself dead to sin. Why? Because when Christ died upon the cross, we died with him, says Paul. His death is our death. We died to sin. And this is an indicative about us. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul understood himself to be dead to sin. We must do the same and all because of our union with Christ. Therefore, be strong in the Lord by reckoning yourself dead to sin. Number three, we are one with Christ in his glorious resurrection. We are one with Christ in his glorious resurrections. When Jesus rose from the dead, he did so as the head of the church. He rose from the dead as the head of the church, a new humanity. Whereas Adam 
out of life brought death. Jesus out of death brought life. And he did it with his bride, the church in mind. Therefore, you must be, must be strong in the Lord by remembering this indicative of the gospel. In Christ, you have been made alive to God. So you must walk in newness of life. Number four, we are one with Christ in his kingly exaltation. Believe it or not, this amazing truth about us, one of the most amazing gospel indicatives about us is that because of our union with Christ through faith, we are seated with him right now in the heavenly places. It is not only that these things are sure going to happen, but in a real sense, in a spiritual sense that they have already happened. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Be strong in the Lord. And finally, we are one with Christ in his priestly intercession. My dear friends, Jesus, the Lord is always interceding for us. And just as he prayed for Peter, that his faith fail not. So he too is praying for us that our faith fail not. He did not only live, die, rise again, and ascended to save you and me. He also intercedes for you and me. So consider all those indicatives of the gospel and be strengthened in the Lord. Rehearse them in your mind. We are one with the Lord Jesus Christ, which leads me to the second aspect of what being strong in the Lord means. Secondly, means the means this be strong in light of God's favorable disposition toward us. Be strong in light of God's favorable disposition toward us in their recent book, a radical comprehensive call to holiness authors, Beaky and Barrett said this. And I quote, because we are in Christ, God always thinks well of us End quote. Isn't that a revolutionary thought? Because we are in Christ, God always thinks well of us. Amazingly, saints of old knew this amazing truth. This I know, said David, when he was seized by the Philistines in Gath and was surrounded by his enemies. This I know, said David, when he knew his enemies had only wicked and evil thoughts against him. This I know, said David, when the circumstances of his life seemed hopeless and beyond repair. Well, what did David know? This I know, said David, that God is for me. God is for me. God is for us. Brothers and sisters, can you think of anything of greater spiritual weight and of greater practical significance for spiritual battle than knowing that God is for us? In other words, would it be possible for you to take that little sentence, God is for me, and try to ascend any higher? You can't. God is for me. God is for you. God is for us. Going back to Joshua, consider how the command to be strong and courageous was always accompanied by these amazing words from the Lord. I will not leave you or forsake you. Therefore, be strong in the Lord. And then a few verses later in the same passage, the Lord said again, have I not commanded you? 
Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God is for us. It doesn't matter who's sitting in the presidency. God is for us. Now, this doesn't mean that God is in heaven cheering us on. It means something way, way better. That God is for us means that he desires your sanctification because your sanctification means the beautification of his son's bride. His love for his son means he's committed to your sanctification because he, the father wants a beautiful bride for his son. God himself is committed to seeing you that your, your sanctification continues through the end of your life and that you progressively continue to defeat the flesh and Satan. God is for us, my brothers and sisters who then can be against us. Be strong in the Lord, meaning be strong in light of God's favorable disposition toward you. And finally, consider with me, number four, the inexhaustibility of our resources. I included that, the word inexhaustibility because it's kind of a hard word to spell. So you're welcome. <laughs> consider what Paul said, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Finally, be strong. As if being in Christ were not enough encouragement and not enough of a wonderful truth for us to fight the good fight of the faith against Satan, Paul adds those final words to encourage us even more. The strength of his might sounds a, a bit redundant, doesn't it? The strength of his might. Well, if it sounds redundant, it's for the sake of emphasis. This is virtually the same as what Paul already said in chapter 1, verse 19 where he said the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. What Paul is saying is this. Yes, the enemy is strong and the enemy is powerful, but our God is inexhaustibly powerful. You and I may not think much of that statement for the Ephesians. However, who were hearing this for the first time, this was incredible news. Why? Because they lived their lives under the tyranny of false ideas. They lived their lives believing that they were always at the mercy of invisible powers and that there was no way to overcome those invisible powers. And so many of them turn into the practice of magic and other strategies to fight these forces, not knowing that in doing so, this was actually cooperation with Satan. Therefore, Paul saw the need to magnify the power of God above all other powers. So no, Christianity is not hopeless. The Christian life is very much hope filled because the one who stands behind us, around us and in front of us is God almighty whose power knows no end. And we bring, as we bring this to a close, let me give you two words for further meditation. I hope you can take what I'm about to say and remember them as you rehearse these truths in your minds and in your hearts. This is what I want you to take home with you. And hopefully these last few words will serve as tools for application. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Here's for further meditation. Just two things that are a, this is a call to recognize our weakness. Do you realize that? The Lord said, apart from me, you can do nothing in a somewhat paradoxical ending 
the way to be strong is by recognizing our weaknesses for the purpose of dependence upon Christ and his spirit. Be strong in the Lord because the Lord says apart from him, we can do nothing. So the call to be strong behind that call is a call to, for you to recognize I have nothing apart from him. We can stop pretending. Do you know how to recognize someone who is being strong or strengthened by the Lord? Do you want to know how to recognize that? Look at their prayer life. Look at their prayer life. I do not care how much theology you can process in your mind. If you don't spend most of your days on your knees, you're not depending on the Lord. You cannot tell me that you are strong in the Lord. If you don't realize your never ending need for the Lord. And this will manifest itself in one primary way. Prayer. How's your prayer life? How desperate are you for the Lord? And number two, the last call or the last application point. This is a call to look up to heaven. You cannot begin to be strong in the Lord. If your mind is constantly stuck in the world. Do you realize what I'm saying? I fear for some Christians who have become so terribly concerned about current issues that they are forgetting to look up and meditate on heavenly issues. Some have grown so overwhelmed by or with the media news of chaos that they are starting to forget the good news of Jesus. If we will fight the good fight of the faith against Satan and sin, then we must look up to heaven. We must develop heavenly mindedness. We must anchor our lives to where Christ is. Let me finish with the words of William Gurnall, a Puritan of the past who said it very profoundly. Please listen to these words. Do not miss them. And I quote, it is almost impossible to sin. It is almost impossible to sin with lively thoughts and hopes of the glory to come. It is when the thoughts of heaven are long out of the Christian's sight that he begins to set up some idol as Israel, the calf in the absence of Moses. End quote. Amazing, isn't it? As soon as Israel lost sight of Moses, they became consumed with building an idol. So let me ask you, are you becoming consumed with something, whether that is politics, racial issues, coronavirus, masking, not masking, or whatever else? Is anything consuming your life? Then be aware. It is likely because you are losing sight of your redeemer. In your battle against sin and Satan, do not remove your eyes from the Lord. For when you do, mark my words, something else will take Jesus's rightful place. And it will become your idol. You're no exception to that rule. 
From now on, then, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Let us all look up to heaven, to where he is. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for reminding us this morning that our main duty as Christians is to keep our eyes on Christ. There are so many things happening in the world right now, and we're all, to some degree or another, affected by what is taking place. There are divisions that are ravaging the country. Even false messages that are beginning to creep into the church at large. And we know that we have an enemy that will not rest. And yet, God is for us. You are for us. And Father, we are humbled this morning for reminding us that in Christ we have all spiritual blessings. That we need nothing else. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.